Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. All right, sports fans, Podcast One has two great new shows for you to check out. Seven-time NBA champ Robert Ory is bringing big guests and great NBA commentary on the Big Shot Bob Pod. The Brooklyn Nets remind me of Oklahoma Sooner football, and we got to have to outscore you every time, and that's what the Brooklyn Nets are. Hey, you got Steve Nash at the helm, you got Dan Tony. They ain't thinking about no defense. And Eric Bowling and Brett Favre come together for Bowling with Favre. Everything from sports to politics to business and culture. Any uh, insight on what Aaron plans to do in, in Green Bay? What I read into his comments were simply frustration. Nothing more than that. Subscribe now to the Big Shot Bob Pod and Bowling with Favre on the Podcast One app, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And rate and review the shows on Apple for your chance to be featured. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Seth Partno, my colleague at The Athletic, and one of my favorite people to talk to about where the sport is and where it's going. And we start out with a uh, conversation on something he wrote about recently, which was defensive shot quality, which is something I find really interesting, part of his shot quality series for The Athletic. And then we got into title contenders, buyers and sellers at the trade deadline, the awesome analytics conference that he is going to be involved in that's coming up later this week. We'll have plenty of details on that, both in Seth's section and at the end. So lots of good conversation, a little bit on the shorter side, it's about 40 minutes, but lots of great stuff in here. Hope you really enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, Pleasure as always, Danny. The place I want to start is you wrote a really interesting piece for The Athletic, I think it was about a week ago, continuing your shot quality series talking about defensive shot quality, which is, is I, I end up fixating, I think, more often on offensive shot quality, but defensive shot quality is insanely important in terms of projecting how teams are going to succeed and also what success is sustainable. I actually think defensive shot quality is more important than kind of offensive shot quality. Um, I, don't, I wouldn't say that. It's not more important, but you can tell much more about a team's offense just by looking at how well they're shooting than you can about a team's defense by looking at how opponents are shooting. So you need to understand the process a little better on the defensive side to get a handle on a team. And so I think it is. I think it is uh, maybe maybe more instructive. Um, and you know, there's there's a number of reasons for that. Number one is that you know shot quality is sort of an aggregate stat, and um, 
you know, the, the, the highest quality shots for any given team are shots that players on that team can make. Uh, and that, that changes for a team. So a team could be taking quote unquote bad shots that are fine shots for them. But if a team is giving up good shots, it kind of doesn't matter who they're playing against eventually. Sorry, Knicks fans. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and the idea that if a defense is trying to stop and concede certain shots, you get the offensive variance, which makes a lot of sense. So basically the idea is that you'll have some teams that have great three-point shooters, you'll have some teams that have bad three-point shooters. And it's not necessarily true over 20 games or over 40 games, but over 72, 82, not always. I mean, there all, there's always variance in terms of like what, an opponent, what a team's opponent three-point shooting percentage is. But the idea is that a lot of that stuff comes out once you once you kind of minimize variance by increasing the sample, is that correct? Yeah, you both both that and also you can sort of balance your opponents. Um, you can you, you can go on a pretty good defensive run by playing five teams in a row that can't shoot. Yeah, that's a great point. Well, and that's what the thing that you talked about with Jason Quick was, right? Like that the the Blazers yeah. had been looking a lot better defensively, and it's become partially because they were playing worse teams. Worse shooting they, they were playing, yeah, they were playing worse shooting teams, and it's not saying they they played bad defense, but it's a, it's, it's a, you know you 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 play certain groups of teams, and it's a great recipe to get your defense help, healthy. Yeah, that's a really good point, and it and it's challenging, I'm sure, this year for you know models and everything like that because <laughs> because there isn't necessarily internal consistency. So then, like, let's say, okay, the I don't know if you want to use like the Wizards or what. Pick a team. Yeah, any team that in that specific game their shot their their shooter quality might be dramatically different than the season on the aggregate or last season. Right. So I mean, you, you I mean, looking at it more, you you also can look at who like specifically who has taken shots, not just the teams they've played against. But yeah, if you're doing like a like a quick and dirty analysis, oh, they've played the five worst shooting teams in the league. Of course, they play. Their 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 defense has been good the last five games. That that generally speaking will hold. Yeah, and and that makes a lot of sense. And then it's I, I, one of the other elements that I've I've tried to convey. And this is actually some some good news for Knicks fans. Um, you know, you, I've been skeptical of various elements of their defense. Is that broadly speaking, defenses can control can affect an opponent's success rate more the closer you get to the basket. That is very good news for Rudy Gobert and the Jazz. That is very bad news for other teams. And I think, like, so if we're going to use the Knicks as a prism, at least for this little bit, that is a good piece of news for them because I think that they are, when healthy, a reliable, a pretty reliable rim-protecting team. I mean, Mitchell Robinson and Noel. You Yes. Yes. You, like, yes. Like, those, those players are probably not as good overall quote-unquote rim protectors as kind of some of their block numbers would indicate. Um, that that makes they, me go back to that old rim protection, that thing that you had back in the nylon calculus days. Wasn't that part of the idea? Yeah, is, is you know, a, a block shot is sort of a, a, a binary. But, you know, how many shots does Rudy Gobert make teams that don't have Zion Williamson miss without actually touching them because they're, you know, trying to contort themselves to avoid him? Um, whereas, you know, a bad rim protector, a guy's just like powering up and shooting a layup and maybe he misses it, but probably not. 
Um, and you know, maybe maybe a, maybe an NS gets a fingertip on it from that from time to time, but for the most part, he's not really affecting the guy what what the guy wants to do with the ball. Right, and so I think that's a difference for block shots versus steals. I mean, part of it was I was coming up. You know, the t- first team I covered regularly with a credential was those early 2010s Golden State Warriors with Monte Ellis, who was one of the ultimate examples of, like, steals are not a reliably positive stat, because you can be, I mean, they can be, obviously. It's, a steal is a is the the best defensive outcome for a possession. But if the way you get there is by gambling 10 times and getting one of them, then you're right. creating a lot of good opportunities. And a block is not that extreme. But it doesn't necessarily reflect, it is not a as good a reflection of what you're trying to quantify and discuss than you want it to be. Like, you do not, this guy, because he blocks 5% more shots a game, does not mean he is the best rim protector. It means he blocks 5% more shots a game. Right. Um, I think the first time this was this was uh, th- th- this was pointed out was I think early in David Robinson's career, and someone had someone noted that the like the the opponent two point percentage uh, that that Spurs opponent shots in like games Robinson played versus those he didn't, and it was like yeah he's only okay, he's blocking two of them, but they're missing ten extra shots a game. What's going on there? Um, and and so just you know inducing those misses is is really what the defense is about and really like forcing a miss without blocking it is almost better because a block tends to end up out of bounds and they get the ball back so uh in in some ways it's almost better to force a miss without blocking it although you know obviously a shot with a zero percent chance of going in is is a good outcome for the defense yeah it absolutely is and that gets into something that can sometimes be Hard to reconcile, especially when you consider that there is a third factor here, which we'll talk about, which is rim frequency versus rim success. So the idea basically being like deterrence versus actually like them them going up and making it. But then I want to mention the third factor because this is something that has come up a little bit, and I don't have the statistical sophistication to get all the way to this, is that sometimes when teams are so zealous about protecting against the rim – you think about, well, one of the ways they, that teams can get there is through transition. And let's say, I mean, there are obviously, you know, getting back and all these other things, ways that teams can affect how much their opponents get shots around the basket in transition, unless you're facing the Denver Nuggets in that last couple seconds of that Washington game. And that is a, a real challenge for me sometimes. Is And correct me if I'm wrong, but like that if theoretically, let's say you're super zealous about protecting the rim, that means a higher proportion of the opponent's rim attempts are coming in transition, which are not necessarily ref- – they're reflective of something, but it's not the same thing. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that, that, that's an interesting point. Um, you, Yes, if, if you're rarely giving up half-court rim attempts, it's prob- it, it is probable that a higher proportion of opponent rim attempts are coming in transition, which are – you know tend to be – pretty high value so again could could that be enough to really affect the numbers based on the way they're kind of disseminated now um that's a good question i've actually there's a similar effect i've i've wondered about you know for transition and half court in other kind of situations and i've never really found the effect that i think is theoretically possible so i don't know but i'm i'm skeptical it would it would be that much um so maybe but i i would my my intuition would be not so much i don't want to i don't want to dwell on it i think you and i may have discussed on the podcast before we obviously we've definitely discussed it outside of it before um 
part of the challenge of and and this is a challenge that might be a temporary one we'll have to see of quantifying some of this stuff is that it does rely on let's call it the human element and what i mean by that is like logging and tracking of shots this is something you got into a little bit in the piece in terms of you ended up grouping kind of the everything under 10 feet into one group and i think part of that was because it's nice to think about at the rim and away from the rim as totally different things and it's you know there there are some dispositive value in that however that relies on the person who because it's humans logging them marking it quote-unquote correctly and that can lead to some real variance too well no actually the, the reason i did that is that's that's how the the data is available on nba yes um it's still so true though i mean yeah no and and so that so there, there's actually kind of two different things that are going on here like the data that that i'm using on nba.com to to really get into the shot quality stuff which includes you know defensive pressure and shot clock time and number of dribbles before the shot and stuff like that that that's all derived from practice from tracking data and so that that kind of while there is some sort of interesting stuff kind of closer to the basket on how far was this shot taken from uh it, it that those sort of determinations uh well this was a four footer versus a two footer based on how i where i placed the stylus on the courtside entry system um we don't have that problem in tracking data now in in kind of the what we're more used to seeing in data that comes up in like shot charts and stuff like that, that is absolutely uh, an issue that 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 comes into play. And as I uh, were recording this on Tuesday, as I wrote about today, um, you know, there there appear to be some f- significant arena effects in terms of of some scorekeepers are more inclined to call shots a little closer to the rim than others. And it doesn't matter; like the shot still goes in or it doesn't. But when doing analysis, it can really like you know a big swing in that can kind of change you know, the, how your evaluation of the process, I guess. Yeah. And uh, an analog in the kind of scoring vagaries is certain play, certain arenas, certain scorekeepers are more willing to be flexible on what counts as an assist. You know, like I think back to the Chris Paul, New Orleans one, I think that was a notoriously generous scorekeeper and that, as you said, like it's whether the basket goes in or not, but it is an element of statistical credit, which if it is not an assist, even like and, – and also, of course, there are assists that are larger value added than others. But it gets into the idea of like sometimes the quick and easy quantifications are really nice, but it, can, it's, it gets – it's not necessarily sufficiently complete. Yeah, and this is, this is also – I think this is a, of a different sort of there, – there was, there was an element of, of kind of gassing your guy up. To yep. the to the to those those kind of hometown assists. I don't I don't think like what what I'm talking about the shot locations is that. Right. I think it's just like one scorekeeper is interpret is he is maybe as simple as sitting at a at a different angle to the to the play. Yeah, uh, or like one or where another. they take off from versus where they shoot from. Yeah, I'm sure that yeah. could be a challenge in a lot of these. Like yeah. like if you if you did it on on takeoff point, a lot of shots around the basket would actually be labeled as as a little bit further away because if you jump like these players are amazing athletes like they can jump from further out and oh get it no the this, so this is like figuring out where a shot is taken from for a player like jumping towards the basket is actually something that has been kind of hard to totally pinned down in tracking data um like it's it's something that's kind of constantly under revision and you know there were times uh, as of a, you know a couple of years ago where like Giannis took a lot of eight foot layups. <laughs> you know, a guy who moves very quickly to the basket has very long arms. Like 
you know, like where you're measuring that shot. Like there's no right or wrong answer. It's, but it's, it's, and especially if you're trying to do something algorithmic that like, you know, an edge case is going to break uh, something that uh, that is designed to fit most players. So there was, yeah, and it's, it's also it's also interesting because though you could think about those shots being fundamentally different based on like closest defender and all these other things. Like if you take off from eight feet, but there's somebody there, then maybe you're taking a, more of a floater runner. If you're taking off from eight feet and there's no one there, Giannis can be dunking. Like that is a really interesting distinction too. Yeah, and well, also it's Giannis, so he's okay. He's dunking. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so it's but if it uh, but so let's say it's I don't know somebody less explosive then yeah, then yeah. then it becomes it becomes a a different a different ball game like let's say it's Monte Morris like a Monte Morris right. four foot shot is going to look different whether there if there is a person there or not yeah no I mean it's the difference between like a contorting layup and just kind of a uh, a kind of a, a backhand to the ring rim uh, finger roll. Well, and like that gets two. into the the other funny thing about how things are logged. That oh, who who was that? Um, was that was that crumple jumper? What the thing about basically like the longer the description, the more likely the shot is to go in. Oh no, that's something that's that's something that we've noted for a long time. I, yeah, that was first. Uh, um, I'll, I'll take credit for that. Back in uh, I think that was around 2013 on Nylon Calculus. Kind of it was it was it was decided that uh, um, you know. Uh, this this was even before he became famous for the step back jumper, but like James Harden was supposedly shooting like sixty percent on step back threes that year, uh, which meant he was shooting like sixty percent, like he had made you know some high percentage of a low number of attempts, and on just like normal three pointers, he was shooting like in the low thirties. It's like so, why does he just not jump backwards every time he shoots if he's so much better at it? Or there's something strange going on with the logging, and it's you know for any number of reasons. You know the the, uh, the shot gets noted as being fancier when it goes in than I, oftentimes. I mean, to to me, the most straightforward one is that if the shot doesn't go in, there's more work for that logger yep. to do. Yep. No, that, and that there's that also. You don't you don't have as much time because there's a rebound. There's maybe an offensive rebound, maybe a foul, and you have to you know plug in a bunch of different things in a in a short span of time. Yeah, that's a uh, that's a really good point. Um, I, I liked in the piece uh, something that you did was you. In the piece from last week, you did the shot quality one. You talked about where things were at kind of like the halfway point of last year. And so kind of, you know, like the, the teams that defy, like, so th- that the Nuggets last year were kind of where the Knicks are right now. Yeah, and this, it's not something that, that you know, that, that is, oh, it's not a rubber band. Sure. If, if the, the, the Knicks are not going to, the Knicks are no likely to be, no, no much, no more likely no likelier, whichever, uh, to be the kind of the unluckiest team on opponent three point shooting in the second half of the season, as they are to be as as lucky kind of in the second half as they were in the first half. Um, but those are still both of those outcomes are still pretty unlikely, and the expectation is kind of neutral. Um, but what can happen is you you can you can see those huge swings that don't necessarily have much correlation to any underlying kind of process. It's just the shots are going in and they, they weren't before. And that happens. Yeah. I think the rubber band part of this warrants a little bit, a little bit more of explanation. I think it's a really interesting idea, which is, uh, I was thinking about it. There was a, I think it was 
uh, Dan Saborski got it. Got a, He was going through his favorite emails, and somebody was uh, te- sending something about David Wright, and like David Wright was well below his projected OPS at that point. And they're like, well, so he's obviously going to be like he's going to have an OPS that's like triple the normal thing, so he could get to that expected number. It's like that's not necessarily the way this works. No, it's it, regression to the mean is not like a rubber band that snaps back. It just means that you're going to you know approach your true kind of level um as you the the rest of your your attempts are kind of completed at that level so you still have that you know it's just like a team that gets some fortunate wins early in the season you've banked those you've banked those extra makes you've banked those you know new york has banked whatever teams have shot on open threes against them so far this season so when the end of season numbers come in like those will still be there those will still be a big chunk of their sample um but for the rest of the year, you would expect them to be about average. And so that that's going to make their seasonal average kind of somewhere between the two. Right. And like one way to think about this is last year, and I'm using cleaning the glasses version, the team that gave up the lowest opponent three-point shooting percentage was the Toronto Raptors. They were at 34.3%. This year, the Toronto Raptors, and yes, their personnel is different, but this gets into the idea. League average, 37.8, just just a little bit, a little bit stronger opponent shooting than league average. The Celtics, I mean, the Celtics have been kind of the question of whether that was gonna, you know, be the be the truism. Um, and they did it. I mean, Indiana has flown pretty far from one direction to the other. Like, that's that's the whole point. It doesn't necessarily equalize over the course of a whole season, but it's still not predictive, especially moving forward. Yes. I think that's a, that, that, that's a good way of putting it. Um, I so this is one of those things that that you have to be very very careful in how you say it. Um, uh, it, it it can e- it can easily be interpreted as as saying that defending the three pointer isn't a thing. I don't think that's true. Um, it's more that opponent percentage is not a great measure of how well you've uh, of how well you've done so. Uh, for for all these various reasons, I mean, I think just you know, there like you can, there are obviously good and bad ways to 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 contest a shot. Like uh, on both ends of the bad ways, you either you foul the guy, that's a terrible contest, uh, or you're just nowhere near him and you leave him all alone and he has you know time to make a sandwich before he shoots. Also terrible. On the other end is you block it; it has no chance of going in. That's great. And there's you know all sorts of gradations between there. Um, and there's no reason not to believe that some teams and players are better at that than others. It's just that for any number of reasons, picking the signal of that skill out of the out of the noise that is the percentage is basically impossible with the tools we have right now. So that tends to get the shorthand for that tends to be that you know defenses have no control over opponent three point percentage. And that's not totally true, but it's close enough to be true that we kind of start from there as our as our hypothesis. Yeah, and I, that's why I think it's good to use like predictive as as a word there, yeah. not necessarily yeah. like dispositive. Because right. yeah, I mean, obviously, if you're you know, if and the, the whole thing with like leaving the right guys open, I think the reason why you know why because like that's something that comes up. I mean, this year it's been Knicks fans. It's been lots of people in, in other points <laughs> in the years. Two years ago, it was also Knicks fans. Of memory serves, might have been three. Um, but it's the it's the idea that. In the aggregate, when you're thinking about the large scale, 
teams don't do that enough for it to be for it to be predictive and that's why even though it isn't an absolute truism you go that direction because it's more true than the yes. alternative yeah well and it's and, and actually the the funny thing is 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 if you want to think of it every team tries to leave the right guys open yeah no team no team is like you know if, if Duncan Robinson's coming off a pin down 29 teams in the league are trying to stay attached to his body Duncan Robinson still, still gets shots off and still make shots um because he's good um so it, so it's not just a matter of of like quote leaving the right guys open it's doing that demonstrably better than other teams and I there's very little evidence so that's that that's doable over a regular season i think if we get into like a playoff situation then that might change a little bit because then you can start to like you know do more specific prep for kind of pet actions and and stuff like that which is that kind of prep is much more executable in a in a kind of a playoff setting where you're playing the same team a bunch and have you know some time to prep for them both before the first game and between games. Yeah, that's a great point. Shifting gears a bit, do you, do you have more on this topic, or I was going to transition? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what Something that I've been thinking about a lot the last couple of weeks is, not everything is about the championship, but I, I enjoy thinking about title contenders, and I, I'm always a little bit reluctant to, to do too much on them in the early part of the season, just because it takes time to figure it out. We're focused more on, I'll use normal calendar dates, we're focused more on on March and April than we are on December and January for that exact reason. And what has been interesting to me as I'm kind of like processing, well, who's tier one and all that type of stuff is that other than the Jazz, we haven't really gotten particularly close other than for maybe like a two or a three game stretch, I would say, to any of the real title contenders fastball. Like we haven't seen that stretch of like, oh, this is what they're going to do. This is how they're going to crush everybody. And some of that is due to the unusual nature of this season, players being out, whether it's COVID or all these muscle injuries that are going on. And I actually am kind of excited by that. I think that it's going to make the second half of the season a lot more kind of stressful as an analyst, but it's also going to be fun to watch it kind of come together for, well, not everybody, but for as many teams as hopefully can. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I think we've seen like, you know, we, we've definitely seen stretches where the Lakers have looked pretty menacing. I think we've seen, you know, when, especially like before, before Drew Holiday, like, uh, you know, missed all the games with the uh, with the, in the, the health and safety protocols. I think we really saw that from from the Bucks. I, I don't know if we've I don't know if we've really seen a run from the Clippers yet. Um, I I don't know if we've seen a, a run from the Nuggets. I don't know if we if we think of the Nuggets that way or not. In part because they they you know they they, they haven't really done that yet. And, and like you say. Um, the only other team that's kind of had that is, is I would say Philly. Um, well, I, like we've seen, I think we've seen more of like the the theory of the 76ers more than any other team by Utah. Yeah, the the Sixers are an interesting one. I I haven't thought about them that way. I mean, they had had a they did have a lot of success, but I I, I it's funny I don't. And sometimes this is the nature of when you watch a team and everything like that. Like those dominant wins. I remember they had that I was impressed with with how the Embiid had a couple of big games against Boston early in the year, but Boston hasn't been exactly what we hoped and expected early on. I'm not writing them off in any way, shape, or form. But yeah, the other one for me is the Clippers. I mean, I would, off the top of my head, the time that was, and I'm looking briefly through their schedule, the time that I was most impressed with the Clippers was actually the first two games of the season when they, I thought they played the Lakers well and then they faced the Nuggets a couple nights later and, and handled them. 
Yeah, and you know, I think everyone is not everyone, but a lot of people are kind of the Nuggets seem like of the top teams, they're the one with a move to make. Um, I think that you know, you look at their team. Uh, you think of like a like a, a a fourth quarter playoff lineup. I think they've got four guys you feel pretty good about, um, give or take Nick Batum, who in as kind of the third wing guy um, actually seems like he makes a lot of sense. But you've got even though you've got Abaka, George, and Kawhi, and then Batum, and that's like okay, that's very um, switchable, versatile. Um, got plenty of shooting. Um, who's the fifth guy? Um, maybe in some matchups it's Pat Beverly. And but some it's Marcus I mean, Morris, but but they don't they don't have that clear yeah. cut they don't have that clear cut fifth guy. It's an interest it's an interesting concept, and I mean, it's, and you could even have somebody like if you added that that could you know knock Batum out or something else. But yeah, and I mean, part of why I've been I mean, granted, I was I was plenty plenty optimistic about the Clippers last year that didn't work out super well, but I think that Ibaka and we saw this at moments in time over over this season, but not as consistently yet. That incidentally, I actually thought this you saw this a little bit more in their loss to the Jazz than the win was that he opens up some creative opportunities because Ibaka, you know, they don't have to switch everything, the Clippers can succeed in other ways. Um, so maybe it ends up being a, at times a more conventional approach, but then you can space the four from the five, and then you get some of the you get ancillary benefits with that, with that in the first place, yeah. Um, I don't know, but the, the, the thing, I mean, I don't know, maybe to be cliche, it seems like the thing that the the Clippers, like a, you don't want to say they need a point guard, but it, it seems like someone who can kind of get them into some less heavy sledding offensive looks than, you know, Paul George and Kawhi can, you know, they can do that. They can create every shot. They can, they can, whether it's for themselves or someone else, but it, it's, it does seem like that's a little bit of, it's a little bit of pushing a sled uphill. Mm-hmm. Whereas just having you know just having a guy who can come down, run a pick and roll, you do some stuff, you're in your continuity, and and the offense happens, and you can do that kind of autopilot for a couple minutes at a time. I, I want to say just to just to like you know to uh, to not have the you know the foot on the gas for your your two main guys quite as much, and I think that would that would do well for them. And like their only option for that right now is Reggie Jackson, and yeah, yeah. I, I think one way of kind of describing that is what's been going on with the Celtics this year where Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown have both taken big steps forward but I still think the Celtics offense looks best when Kemba Walker can shoulder a larger part of the load the offense just flows more naturally Kemba can he's he creates in a fundamentally different way he's looking for teammates it's creating better shots overall and so while you want all of that, and the, the, the gains that Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum have made will benefit the Celtics when they're full strength and when they're not. I I think about that sometimes with the Clippers, and it'll be fascinating to see, because remember, another part of this for everybody, especially in some ways for established stars, is not only about what the you know what's best for like you know if you building a team in the abstract it's also the human element here and so i agree with you i think that would really help them but would tyloo empower that player would paul george and Kawhi leonard empower that player i'm i'm genuinely unsure i'm not saying unsure like oh i'm skeptical those guys are jerks or something like that it just it changes the way the ball flows it changes the way the offense moves yeah, I don't think we're not talking about like Chris Paul, someone who's just gonna you know right. who, who's gonna who's gonna be the little general out there, just someone who can you know a 
a professional point guard who can who can who can run a league average pick and roll four times in a row. Yeah, and something that would be interesting for them, and there aren't too many of these players in the league, but there are there are a few, is somebody who's capable but who is not so great that they have to be out there no matter what. Like, sure, if you can get somebody who's so great they'd be out there no matter what, with, that would be fantastic. But the Clippers don't have the means and the resources to do that because they have all these. Yeah, they have all these. First you, I was going to say. I was going to say. Do you have Do you have a name in mind? I don't. Do you? Oh, I have uh, one. I yeah, Patty Mills. I, uh, oh, that's not the name I was expecting. Wow. Well. Well, that would be interesting. Um. Yeah. Who was I? I feel like someone. I was having this conversation with someone, and they followed, they followed George Hill, and I thought that that was kind of like. And I think they, they're different, but kind of similar players in that way. Well, what um, I like what I like about Hill is that he he he's more if kind of what I would call reverse scalable in the sense that if if he doesn't have the ball as much, that's totally fine. Like we've seen that at various yeah. moments in his career. Whereas Patty Mills, I think he functions better, you know, not, not as an insanely high usage player, but you know, it within, within the higher range of what you would want with Paul George and Kawhi. Yeah, I think so. Um, no, that, that, I mean, I, but that, I mean, like you said, of the, of the sort of top tier contenders, like they are the one that really seems like they maybe have something to get something done. And and have a need like I think that the the Bucks could obviously use some depth, um, but they just you know with the um, not even from an asset standpoint, just from a like cap legal perspective, like they're so close to the to the the hard cap um, that that it's that it's hard to it, it's it's hard to find a way to make moves at all for you know anyone who's making any sort of money. So that that. Even though it would be nice, it's it's just the mechanics are so much more difficult. Yeah, and as we head into the trade deadline, and this is pretty consistently true for me, it's either the top-end buyers or this group of teams that have a little bit more nebulous ideas. I mean, we're seeing some of that with the Toronto Raptors, the reporting that is out there a little bit that maybe they're open to trading Kyle Lowry. I have posited that I actually think that's interesting, if true, because... That is a is a preliminary indicator that maybe they're not going to re-sign Kyle Lowry, which I had thought, like, you know, part of the reason you keep him is so that you can bring him back, though the cost of that might get high. But so you think about a team like Toronto or, let's say, Denver, where I think Denver could add. They have the, they have the means to do so. They have some intriguing young players. They have maybe not great filler salary, but they have players that make, you know, modest amounts of money. And so I'm really interested – in those sorts of teams, the ones that don't have to make a move but can make a move, what they end up deciding to do. I mean, Denver has been crying out for a consolidation trade for how many years? I think two or three. Yeah. I mean, and, and this is, you know, past results, not guarantees of future performance. But if I'm them, I've kind of shown a track record of, oh, I have three roster spots. Let me go find some guys who are NBA players, and they can do that. So trade you know a couple three guys for one higher end player and then go find a couple more nba players and you still have 15 um and that's it and and it just seems they have so consistently you know you know hey rj hampton looks he looks interesting zig nudgy pretty interesting like they just have those guys up and down their roster and um you know they have they have three point guards you can play um so i i would just i would be you know I would be wanting to be so much more aggressive to try to find that, you know, higher end person to like plug in like, a, you know, a higher end wing to start in place of of Gary Harris, essentially. 
And something that Denver has going for them is that they have some of those higher end players. So you're not expecting wing X to necessarily be your end all be all because those type of players aren't truly available. But if it's somebody who can defend on the wing and hit open shots, which unfortunately Gary Harris is still having trouble with, then it, I I mean, I think that it's still hard to get and they might have to sacrifice some players that they like, but it is a worthwhile consideration at bare minimum. I, I mean, I also think that, you know, if you're where Denver thinks they are um, and where they've they've after kind of a rough start to the season where they've kind of been, um, I think you you kind of your your value proposition changes what it means to overplay pay for a player changes because you care more about like who are the like what are the best five players we can put on the court? Yeah, well, there's I think there was and a then, Fangraphs piece on this a couple of years ago. It's like the last wins cost the most. And there's a reason yes. for that. And whether that's yes. that you have to overpay, you have to overpay your players when you're already a good team, like the last guy gets more money because you have to keep him, or just because, you know, in terms of treasure, in terms of assets it takes, that's just the way it works. Yeah. And and so there, I mean, and maybe this is just, you know, it, I we, we thought they should have traded for Drew Holiday last year, and they didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so maybe this is that this is this conversation is residue of that a little bit, but but still, I be. think there are that, yeah. And then, can we talk about the flip side of that? How just like the, the fact that it's so compressed and the playing games, like you know, there, there, there's a lot of players on, say, the Bulls who would be interesting for a contender who just probably aren't available because the Bulls are right there. Yeah, this is something like your, I was getting at. Be, it, uh, would, it, yeah. yeah, I was getting at that a little bit in my seller's piece. It's like, what would selling look like? And then are these teams actually going to do it? Yeah, I mean, Thaddeus Young is a great example. I mean, the Bulls are such a weird case because their veterans have been some of their best players. And so, like, they've been, you know, they've been modestly successful, especially when healthy. But it's so interesting because, I mean, Zach Levine notwithstanding, like, I'm, I, they've, they've had a reasonable year, but I'm not feeling necessarily better other than Levine about their young guys. Um, but it's because they've, you know, like Porter, when he was healthy, was really helping them. Garrett Temple, when he's been available, has really helped them. And so, yeah, you're right. A lot of those guys could help another team. But, but, and there's, there's so many of those guys around the league that's like, you know, that's the kind of guy who would be, uh, you know, a, a target at the deadline. And, and just because there's, you know, how many teams that are, that are just, you know, sort of in the out of it, but and okay with it position right now yeah like two or three and the the other cruel twist of fate is that some of the players on teams either in that space or or adjacent to it are players who make so much money that they're functionally untradeable so like yeah blake griffin blake griffin al horford andre drummond like not that any of them are necessarily like i mean horford would help a team in a different way but when you make that much money it often is buyout or nothing because there just isn't another way to make a deal work yeah and that uh, and that's it 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 became you and you and nate talked about this i think is 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 for especially for a player like griffin who has multiple years left like i you know how much do you give back if you're Blake Griffin? To, well, and how to, much? And how much do you demand back if you're the Pistons? Because there's no flexibility once you cut him. Like this is the Nikola Batum situation, yeah. or Joe Noah with the Knicks and everything else. Once I actually wrote a piece for the Athletic that came out on Tuesday that's talking about this is that dead money is one of the only things that's set in the league, and so once you have that, you can't do anything with it, and so there is a real cost to that from Detroit's perspective and everything else. You wait for it to come off the books, and then you trade for more salary to stretch. That is a way to do. 
Um, but uh, so I, we're, we're just about done. But I want to take a, a. Do you want to talk a little bit about the analytics conference that's going on later this week? Oh yeah, thank you. Uh, you know, we uh, um, uh, myself and and, uh, and some friends, uh, Michael Lopez, who is the head of analytics for the 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 NFL, the, uh, the league office. Uh, Megan Shaka, who is the uh, CEO of Stathletes, which is a uh, hockey data company, and Allison Lucan, who is a uh, wonderful uh, hockey writer who, who put, weaves data in and out of her storytelling about as well as anyone around. Uh, we have put together kind of a two-day virtual conference where we're going to be uh, discussing some topics in, in sports analytics with a um, an emphasis, I would say, on communication and uh, increasing access for uh, people sort of newer to the field to, to kind of learn not just how to get a job, but how to do stuff. Um, I think that there's plenty of advice out there on what you do if you want to get hired, but less so on how do I actually start to do analysis. And so that uh, that conference is going to be uh, Thursday afternoon and all day Friday. Uh, it's called the Sports Ideas Symposium. Uh, you can find the website and sign up information and um, a list of of, uh, of speakers, including I should add the uh, Evan Wash, who's uh, the EVP at the NBA League Office, who's in charge of of the NBA's kind of internal analytics arm, uh, is is doing a, a fireside chat with, uh, with with our friend Ben Taylor, and I think that should be really interesting for for basketball fans of all stripes. Um, but uh, it's sportsideas.com, and uh, we're we're charging uh, ten bucks for admission. I think it's well worth it, and uh, you know, hopefully, people can join. Yeah, and I love the the idea of making it affordable. I mean, I don't know if this is dream over uh, the West, just to make it more accessible. And I, I mean, there has been a lot of discussion about gatekeeping in sports over the last few weeks, especially the last few days, and making good information and good insight available to people is extremely important. No, and I think that was that was the impetus of, uh, behind the four of us kind of getting together and deciding to plan it was was exactly that is is to sort of remove barriers as much as possible and give you know people real access and insight um, as much as possible and uh, th- you know that one benefit of doing it in a virtual environment is that's that, that that's a little bit less a little bit more frictionless than it yeah. might be in an in person yeah it setting. doesn't have to be taking t- people taking time off work or whatever and flying to a locale and yeah. trying to try and do all that yeah, it, it it is much easier and so yeah i think i think it's a fantastic idea and i'm so happy that you all are doing it yeah i'm i'm looking forward to it it'll it'll uh, it'll be a good time absolutely well thank you so much for taking the time here pleasure as always thanks a lot danny Thanks again so much to Seth Partnow for taking the time to come on. You can read his work at The Athletic. You can listen to the Nerder She Wrote podcast. You can follow Seth on Twitter at Seth Partnow, S-E-T-H-P-A-R-T-N-O-W. And importantly, as long as you're listening to this before Thursday or Friday, you can check out the Sports Ideas Symposium. And if you want to get the full details, Seth went through it a little bit towards the end of the podcast, but you can also go to sports dash ideas.com s-p-o-r-t-s dash i-d-e-a-s.com and check it out really great idea love the low price point as well Bar- barriers to entry are an extremely frustrating part of our business and i love that they are doing something material 
to lower those barriers, which is fantastic. So thrilled about that. And you should definitely check it out if you have the time. If you want to support this show, there are a lot of ways you can do it. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of your choice that helps other people find the show. Also, word of mouth does the same thing. Whether And you can subscribe, download every episode. Those are super important, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, if you subscribe and download, because this show will never come out a specific day of the week or anything else, because it's about when I'm available and when my guests are available. So that allows you to get the episodes when they come in. And while this show is not intended to be super timely, that is part of my concept of Real GM Radio, still good to have them out there, and sometimes they are a little bit timely. I have a lot of other work going on too. Just had a new piece come out today for The Athletic Today, meaning Tuesday, on some a little nuance that I was interested in for the guarantee date deadline. That was fun. That's at The Athletic. Nate and I are doing Dunked On five days a week. One day is the public episode. That's typically a 15 and 60. It's actually going to be the top 10 prospects episode. that We, we aired it for subscribers about a week ago, but that is going to be our all-star break episode. So everybody can get a chance to listen. We put so much time into that. It feels appropriate. And We're also still doing the NBA cast. That is a live broadcast of a game on League Pass. You can watch the game, which is so awesome, as Nate and I worked for years for the ability for you to not have to sync up or anything like that, to have it all on the same screen. And we will be doing that every Monday for the rest of the year. Of course, we'll be taking the coming Monday off because there are no games, so we can't be doing a League Pass broadcast. But it will be back in full swing for the second half of the season. Also, we'll have plenty more content, including maybe just maybe something with Seth on the trade deadline, both before as a preview and analysis after the fact. So you can keep an eye out. That's a great reason to subscribe to The Athletic. If you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write, write it, I will take the time to read it. That is a promise. That can be a guest suggestion. That can be anything. Honestly, it can be talk about this more, talk about this less, really whatever you want to do. And I'm trying to vary it up, trying to go some small team specific stuff, some broad things, whole league specific. That's that's just how we do the show. And hope you enjoy that. But if you don't, your feedback matters. This is a show that is about what, what guests are interested in and also what I'm interested in to a point. So your input does really matter to me. And that's part of how I find great people to be on the show is by who you by saying hey you think this person would be would be good i've gotten a few of those recently and for those people who've sent them i'm putting some work into that we'll see if we'll see if any of it bears fruit but i hope that it does so thank you so much for listening take care and make it a great day 